Good morning. It's Friday, the 4th of August and I am in transit right now in a place where it's not raining dogs and cats. Our top reports and themes for the day. Markets have fallen around 1200 points in 2 days, but worry not. A spate of bullish India reports from global institutions could alleviate the pain if not turn things around. Government places restrictions on imports of laptops, tablets and personal computers. What does it mean? A ban on rice exports is now hurting countries everywhere and it seems to be hurting India too. A 3 week drought of bullish reports ends another solidly bullish India report from a global investment bank Morgan Stanley and Standard and Poor's Global also forecasts good times. Construction could employ 100 million Indians in 7 years. And Arvind Panagreya, former Niti Aayog vice chairman, comes out strongly against those questioning the role of exports as a growth driver for India. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. Okay, so let's get some bad news out of the way. After some 4 months of solid rallying, a downgrade of US debt by Fitch, the ratings organization has triggered, well, how should I put it, markets everywhere to take some deep breaths. The BSE Sensex has now plunged about 1200 points in 2 days thanks to that surprise downgrade by Fitch of US debt from a AAA to a AA+ the day before. Yesterday both major Indian indices fell sharply during the day and then recovered. The BSE Sensex ended 542 points lower to close at 65241 while the Nifty 50 ended 145 points lower at 19382. Meanwhile amongst results Adani Enterprises the flagship company of the Adani Group and the company at the center of the Hindenburg research controversy for alleged corporate governance lapses reported a 44% year on year growth in its consolidated net profits to 674 crores for the quarter ended June 2023 revenue from operations during the first quarter however fell 38% to about 25000 crores from around 40000 crores in the year ago quarter the revenue fall has been attributed to a correction in coal prices government restricts imports of laptops India yesterday announced restrictions on imports of personal computers, laptops, palm tops, automatic data processing machines, microcomputers and large mainframe computers with immediate effect. In a notification issued on Thursday, the Directorate General of Foreign Trade said imports of computers and other items under certain categories have been restricted. Now, before you begin to sweat, let me tell you that this restriction does not apply to baggage rules, so you can continue to bring in or take out laptops like before. That is one laptop bringing in anything more than that and you are liable to pay duty as you were even earlier the objective of this move is quite obviously to promote domestic manufacturing of these products and curtail the majority share of imports of these items from china now there are some allowances including permitting those with a valid license and also if you buy online and ship to india though of course like before you would pay duty when the courier company arrives at your doorstep Similarly if they are part of capital goods as in you import computers because you are for example setting up a new factory then again you don't need a specific license this move is in sync with the government's production linked incentive scheme for it hardware and to push companies to manufacture locally in india needless to add laptop servers and personal computers among others come from china even if the brands are from elsewhere including the united states india has seen an increase in imports of electronics goods and laptop computers in the last few years 
To understand the impact of this move and what it signifies, I reached out to Pankaj Mahindru, chairman of the Indian Cellular and Electronics Association, a leading body representing electronics and mobile manufacturers, technology providers, and brand owners, among others. You know, there are various theories floating around, but I think the most important is that with this massive growth of uh, internet and digital consumers, the requirement of having trusted supply chain is becoming very important. And I think for that, the restriction is essentially keeping that in mind that citizens have trusted sources and the restriction doesn't mean that there is a ban or anything like that. It just means that you have to go through a licensing process. And I'm very sure that all trusted partners will get licenses as per their requirement immediately. So I think there's more smoke than there is fire. So you're saying that an Apple, which obviously people are thinking of when they're visualizing this, will get an import license easily, whereas who will not? I am not naming anybody who will not. I am just saying that all trusted partners will get immediate licenses. So essentially, let me assure the consumers and the trade that there will be no shortage whatsoever. Because all the brands uh, which the consumers uh, desire and which need to be available in the trade and with the consumers, they will be seamlessly available. So there is uh, no need for any panic whatsoever. Okay, so that includes, let's say, more pure China brands like Lenovo? I can't answer that question directly. Uh, Lenovo operates in India since a long time. They are manufacturing in India. So I don't think there is any specific restriction on any particular company. In the GFR roles, there is a restriction, however, that government supplies are restricted for certain countries which are sharing borders with India. Uh, what is GFR, Pankaj? General financial rules of the Department of Expenditure. Got it. So what is our current demand uh, for devices in these categories? That's laptops, personal computers and tablets. How much are we importing and how much is being produced locally at this point? So the import in 22-23 was $5.9 billion, which is uh, less than 21-22, which was $7.8 billion. You would remember that in the COVID time, there was a huge increase. Our domestic manufacturing of these products is between three and a half to four billion dollars as of now. Okay, so that's the total market then, a combination of what we are importing plus what we are thing. So, so about twelve billion dollars in all. Uh, last year it was lower; it was about nine and a half to ten billion dollars. Got it. So now there is a computer as a whole, and there is stuff inside it. So how do we separate the two? As in, because chips have to be imported, I'm assuming, and so many other critical parts. There is absolutely no restriction on that. All those parts of computers can be imported at zero duty. Okay, so what we are talking about now is only the finished product and imports of that, right? Of these categories which are listed out in the notification. So a tablet would be a finished product and so on. Okay, uh, going uh, ahead and looking maybe a year ahead, uh, Pankaj, how are you seeing the domestic production in these areas, including Geo, let's say, which has just announced a notebook, and how do you see that matching up to what people want or what consumers want? This category has been devoid of too much innovation, unlike the smartphones. It's a very small category in India. 
looking at our GDP and the population, it should be much bigger than $10 billion, which is very small. So I think a lot of innovation is required here. And the PLI 2.0 is going to energize the sector, we feel. And there'll be more form factors. I don't think we can say that the entry level is well fed at the moment. I think that the notebook also has not really taken off. So I think there is room for a lot of innovation, product design innovation, form factors, even performance. We are so fastidious about our megapixels in the smartphone, in the smartphone camera. Have you ever bothered about what's happening in the computer? So we have just taken it for granted. That's why replacement cycles are long and so on and so forth. So this segment is poised for innovation and further growth. Right. Uh, Pankaj, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Pleasure. Speaking of imports, Tesla has now taken an office on lease, we are told, in Viman Nagar in Pune. The office space is a co-working center and is spread over about 6,000 square feet. Now, this is obviously news, if not big news, to the where and when will Tesla come to India Watchers Club. The larger question, of course, is where will that plant come up if and when it does? The promise is, just to remind you, of a smaller car worth maybe around about 30 lakh rupees as opposed to its current offering in the United States, which could be twice as much. Pune makes a lot of sense because it does have a huge auto and auto component manufacturing ecosystem. But if you combine electronics, then Karnataka and Tamil Nadu make equal, if not more sense, because they have both. Either way, watch this space. And also Tesla incorporated in India much earlier. Is India's ban on non-Basmati rice exports helping anyone, including India? India's ban on rice exports firstly is hurting the rest of the world. Asian and African countries could face the biggest brunt. But could it be hurting India too since prices seem to be rising? To step back first, India, the world's largest rice exporter, banned the exports of non-Basmati white rice on July 20th in an effort to rein in domestic food inflation, particularly of cereals, which has crossed 10%. India accounts for more than 40% of global rice trade. Malaysia appears to be most vulnerable, according to our analysis, Barclays said in a recent report highlighting the country's sizable reliance on Indian rice. Singapore could be hit too. Now, there are possible exemptions for country-to-country -country deals on imports from India, which are being worked upon, it is believed. India's inflation rose to about 4.81% last month on the back of rising food prices, including pulses and cereals like rice. CNBC reports that this is not the first time India has imposed an export ban on non-Basmati rice, but the impact this time could be much more far-reaching than before. On October 2007, India imposed a ban on non-Basmati exports only to temporarily lift the ban and impose it again in April 2008, sending prices almost 30% higher. So to understand where we stand 12 days into this ban, I spoke with Vinod Kaul, Executive Director of the Indian Rice Exporters Association, and began by asking him where we stood at this point, and more importantly, whether the ban had really helped bring down prices in India. The ban came in on 20th of July. The main reason why government thought of restricting exports of white rice, in fact, it's not a blanket ban on all non-Basmati rice, but it's only on the white, which is known as semi and olive-milled rice, which means uh, white rice. So let me tell you that if we go to the data of 22-23, uh, so we had a peak of 17.78 million tons of export of overall non-Basmati rice. 
and this was despite the fact that 100% broken was uh, banned midway through the last financial year and if I give you segmentation then I'll mention that 44% of our overall non-Basmati rice export last year comprised of parboiled rice which is also in Hindi term for parboiled is Sela it's the same thing Sela is not different Sela and parboiled mean the same thing so, 44% is parboiled, which is not restricted at all. And 36% was white rice, which has now been banned. And 17% was 100% broken, which was banned midway. So, technically, if we go by last year's data, so this year, 53% of uh, the rice has been banned. And what will now be exportable is 44% of parboiled. Let me also mention it to you, the objective of the government was also to pull down prices which uh, had risen almost 12 to 13% over the past several months. So, uh, food security is one of the major concerns of the government. And what also happened this year? You know, we can compare last year and this year. If you look at June 22, it was almost the same situation last year as this year June except that the additional trouble this year was Vipar Joy. Last year also June, there was a serious concern that uh, our acreage under rice would fall down and we will have a bad crop. But within 2-3 weeks, that's about 3rd week of July last year, the whole situation changed dramatically and good sowing happened, monsoon then became normal and we had, you know, what is the fourth estimate of Ministry of Agriculture says that we had 130.5 million tons, which was 0.5 million tons higher than previous year. So we hope that, you know, this year what has happened because of vapor joy and heavy rains, uh, sowing was deferred at many places by about uh, 7 to 10 days so that over flooding of fields was a uh, little cleared up. And today, June, we had a concern. There were apprehensions that about 23% of the acreage would have uh, gone down compared to last year as far as rice is concerned. But the recent forecast uh, by the Ministry of Agriculture is, which has come in the press also, is that around 3% higher acreage has come under rice this year, which is a good sign. We banned exports because of inflation in cereals. Now, you're saying that we don't have a supply problem or the supply situation is improved because of, obviously, monsoons have improved and so on. But is that affecting prices in a positive way? I mean, which is what the core of the problem was. I'll answer it in two ways. Number one, what I said, you know, it is the early part of the cultivation that, uh, you know, transplanting stage only has happened right now. The harvesting of the crop will be only uh, in mid-October till mid-November. But right now, the forecast is that perhaps acreage has improved. So we may have a good crop now. The fears of damage to crop to some extent have been allayed. Now, as far as prices is concerned, yes, after the ban, prior to ban, the average price was around 32-33 rupees per kg. After the ban, it came down by 4 rupees per kg to around 27-28 rupees per kg. But recent feedback now is that, uh, you know, prices have further risen to around, it's around 40-41 rupees per kg today. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, but uh, you know, we don't have confirmed news. But what we understand is that perhaps people are anticipating a lot of LCs coming their way. And that, you know, once that happens, then everywhere the ripples happen. 
and that's perhaps one of the reasons why prices are currently rising. So, when you say LCs, you mean letters of credit for exports? Letter of credit for exports, which is very surprising because it is under ban and still uh, that seems to be happening. Despite the ban, we can export country to country, right? I mean, that's the... Uh, that's not open. That is not open. What the notification said, there was notification number 20 issued on 20th of July. We said that semi and holy mill rice under HS code 10063090 is banned. It was prohibited permanently under that notification. But there was also caveat into that notification that if any foreign government sends a request to the government of India that in order to meet their food security concerns, they would like India to supply rice to them. In that case, government may take a view and devise a mechanism how much quantity to which country they will allocate and how this can be executed. So that provision is there. Yeah. So you've said that basically at this point, despite the ban on exports, prices in India have risen. So tell us about uh, internationally. Obviously, prices have risen internationally as well. And obviously, this affects a lot of relations, at least on between exporters and importers. Uh, what's your sense right now in the international arena? If we look at international prices, we are still less, you know, if we look at last year, when 20% duty was imposed on uh, non-Basmati rice, except parboiled, of course, and Basmati was exempt. Despite that, if I give you 21-22 data, we had then 17.72 uh, million tons in 21-22. Last year, two things happened. Number one, 100% broken was banned, which we had done around 4 million tons in the previous year. So, midway through the year, that was banned. So, that means a straight, roughly around, if we take average, then 2 million tons would have gone down. Okay. And then came 20% duty, which made prices to hike, export prices to hike. But still, we managed to create a new record of 17.78 million tons. The reason for that, perhaps, was that, uh, you know, we were still competitive vis-a-vis -vis Thailand, if you look at Thailand, Vietnam prices, we were around $50 less than that. Compared to Pakistan, we were still $20 to $25 less. So that is why, and you know what had happened in 2020 when this COVID issue came up, Thailand, Vietnam and Pakistan, they had banned their rice export for some time due to fear of their own food security. But India did not ban. As a result, what happened that, uh, you know, there were uh, supply shortages in uh, importing countries. So they turned to India and India fulfilled their food security demands and our exports rose phenomenally from 13 million ton to 17.72 and last year 17.72. This is because, you know, we were still price competitive and Africa for our non-Basmati rice is a major segment accounting for around 65 to 70%. That is where, you know, Africa will have a serious impact because of this ban. And that's the situation because primarily Africa is a major market. Right, right. Uh, Mr. Call, uh, we run out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. And I will, of course, uh, come back to you in a week or two to maybe get a status check on where we are at that point. Thank you so much. Morgan Stanley goes overweight on India. If you want to know what Morgan Stanley, the global investment bank with a sizable presence in India over the years, is saying about India in two lines from a 62-page report, it's this. One, India's future looks to a significant extent like China's past. Second, 
India is arguably at the start of a long wave boom at the same time as China may be ending one. Some details now. The report is titled Asia Emerging Market Equity Strategy and dated August 2nd. It sums up by saying move India to overweight, downgrade Australia to underweight and move Taiwan and China to equal weight. While GDP per capita in India is about $2,500 versus about $12,700 in China, India's demographic trends are positive. So finally, or rather obviously, it's about growth and prospective growth, not so much about where we are today. And of course, taking some bets. Morgan Stanley says its economics team thinks trend GDP growth in China is likely to be around 3.9% to the end of the decade versus 6.5% for China. They also say that India's situation is in stark contrast to that in China as borne out by its recent visit in June to the Morgan Stanley Annual Investment Summit in Mumbai. According to the bank, multipolar world trends are supporting foreign direct investment and portfolio flows into India, with India adding a reform and macro stability agenda that underpins a strong capital expenditure and profit outlook. Morgan Stanley says it sees a secular trend towards sustained superior dollar earnings per share growth versus emerging markets over this cycle, with a young demographic profile supporting equity flows. Among many other positives, Morgan Stanley says, and of course you've heard this one way or the other, but worth perhaps recounting, household debt to GDP in India is about 19% versus 48% for China, and only 2% of Indian households have life insurance. Manufacturing and services PMIs have rallied consistently since the end of COVID restrictions in contrast to a rapid fade seen in China. And by the way, we've seen another bump up in services PMI. Real estate transaction volumes and construction have broken out to the upside and I will come to real estate shortly as well. Moreover, India's ability to leverage multipolar world dynamics is a significant advantage. It's a member of the Quad political framework with the US, Australia and Japan. Okay, now, the key downside risks include an upside surprise in inflation and monetary policies, especially if productivity improvement does not catch up. Another concern is more structural, as artificial intelligence may be disruptive for India's service exports and the labor force generally, though Morgan Stanley says it will monitor the impact closely. An interesting risk is the market's view on the 2024 general election outcome. If the Indian electorate, it says, chooses a less favorable political formation in 2024, the equity markets could experience a significant drawdown. Hmm. Meanwhile, a more muted report by Standard & Poor's Global titled Look Forward India's Moment says India will grow at 6.7% per year on an average for eight years starting 23-24, that's the current year, retaining the tag of being the fastest growing economy in the world. It sees per capita GDP rising to about $4,500. Significantly, it highlights the role of women or the lack of them right now in the labor market. S&P says the path to achieve high, stable and inclusive growth will require visionary decision-making by India in key sectors such as labor and manufacturing. Importantly, unlike in many other such reports, it stresses on the importance of women in the labor force to achieve higher growth. While India's short-term economic growth will be powered by its 678 million strong labor force, the inclusion of more women in the workforce will be crucial for India's future growth as only 24% of women are participating as of 2022, S&P said. The Indian government and the Reserve Bank have forecast a GDP growth rate of 6.5% for 23-24.
Speaking of jobs and workforce, a new report by real estate consulting firm Knight Frank says India's construction industry could create close to 100 million jobs in 7 years or by 2030 from around 71 million now. The report titled Skill Employment in Construction Sector says that the share of skilled workforce in the sector will rise to a little over 10% by the end of this decade from around 9.7 currently. It also says that real estate output is likely to touch a trillion dollars by 2030 which if India is a 5 trillion economy or more would represent at least 20% or more. Moreover it says the construction sector has grown at a rate of 11% annually since 2012 and currently accounts for about 18% of Indian economy's total output. It's also the second largest employer after agriculture. And finally, Arvind Panagria, former Niti Aayog vice chairman and Columbia University's Jagdish Bhagwati professor of Indian political economy was at his fiery best when I put to him the proposition that India could achieve high growth without a high dependence on exports as some have argued. This is what he said. It's very simple. Let's think of the extreme. Suppose you were to raise the tariffs to a level where your imports are zero. There will be no reason to export. There will be absolutely no reason to export. That is what we did for about four or five decades. Pre-1991, I mean, if you go to 1970, imports were four percent of the GDP. Exports were therefore even less than four percent of the GDP. So, of course, the level of protection makes a big, huge difference. A lot of this skepticism, first of all, of course, if you look at the Western economies, they are highly capital-abundant economies. They have no reason to be doing. I mean, they are not even doing as much manufacturing as China or South Korea or, uh, or Taiwan are doing. But for them to do labor-intensive manufacturing processes, neither here nor there. So their manufacturing share being low at the level where we are, of course, tells me nothing at all. I have to compare myself to the labor-abundant economies. I can look at where Korea was, you know, let's say 1980 or 1970, or I can look at where Taiwan was, or I can look at where Singapore was at one point, or where China has been in the last three, four decades. So if I compare with that, I am well below their levels in my share of manufacturing in the GDP, and I return to the theme that in the end it all has to do with the fact that we started as did China, of course, initially in the 1950s with very heavy industry kind of approach to development. China got out of it after then shopping came along. We started in 91, but we did open up the industries, and so growth did happen a lot faster than it had happened before. But we did not restructure the economy. Because a lot of the other regulation remained in place. I mean, you can't be in the industries in which genuinely your factor endowments are not pushing you towards comparative advantage with set of distortions that had existed from the past, which has left you there. So you're not going to become a gigantic exporter in those products, but your scope really remains still with such a large labor force. But you know, the thing is that in the psyche of everybody. <laughs> whether I look at the businessmen in India, whether I look at the policymakers in India, whether I look at intellectuals in India, they all want to do the high-tech stuff. They all want to do high-tech stuff. You know, industries like the clothing industry, the footwear industry, the furniture industry, the everyday light manufacturers, the kitchenware that we use—they are not on at least our leadership's minds. But in the end, you know, if you look at the Chinese exports from the 80s and 90s. That is what they exported. Hear the full episode on the Core Report Weekend Edition on Saturday, where he speaks on the linkages between trade, India's tariffs, export-oriented industries, and jobs. 
And that's it for me for now. Have a great weekend ahead and see you next week. This was the core report with me, Govind Raj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.